Now I'm here. And now I'm here. And now you're here, dear listener. We can begin. So welcome to episode 23 of the Mainframe Performance Topics podcast, the preview that we do. We are Marna Wally from ZOS Development in Poughkeepsie, New York. And Martin Packer realizing he's going to have to explain the pillow comment from last week. And guess what? I've made it again now. <laughs> so you might notice that this is a slightly shorter episode in some ways. Yeah, we have had to uh, slot it for a particular date, which we usually don't have for our, our requirements to release these. But, you know, it's a special day because we want to talk about ZOS 2.4 preview um, right away, right when it was previewed. And we had just completed episode 22. So that kind of leads in naturally to explaining the title of the episode, Marna. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, I semi already explained it a little bit, but you know, we were just uh, mentioning before it would have been really nice if this was called episode two four twenty four. But you know what? It was the twenty fourth episode, so so we're really happy about it. So we wanted to get this out right on the ZOS two dot four preview date, so that we could talk a little bit about some of the more exciting items, at least the ones that I picked up in our mainframe topic. And meanwhile, we have some stuff in here, as you would expect, to do with performance and a topic. And neither of those have anything to do with ZOS 2.4. And now it's time for our mainframe topic. Yeah, and we really need to talk about this, and I'm real happy to talk about it. We are going to talk about the ZOS 2.4 preview item. And I picked four items that I think might be most interesting that we can fit into a short uh, mainframe topic here. So the first one is ZOS Container Extensions, otherwise known as ZCX. Yeah, this is the biggest thing in ZOS 2.4. I'm real excited about this. Now what this function is, is it's intended to enable users to deploy and execute Linux on Z IBM Z Docker containers on ZOS. So you're right, I did have the word Linux and ZOS in the same sentence, okay? So this is a big deal. Yeah, I think it is. And it's not just run, but also enable application developers to develop and package popular open source containers. And it's obvious to me that Docker is pretty popular, to say the least, right now. That's absolutely right. I hear about it all the time. I hear about people using Docker. But you know what we can do now on ZOS is we can take those people that are you know, Docker savvy, and that can leverage industry standard skills, and we can put them right on ZOS right away, you know, unchanged, which is great. So if we look at this, I I went out to Docker Hub, and I got a user ID in Docker Hub, and I looked at the IBM Z Linux containers out there, and I got a latest count of 1724 in 14 categories that theoretically could be put immediately on ZOS if you're going to use ZCX. Now, I, I always like to look at functional dependencies on, on new functions. So this is something that will have functional dependencies. It will have hardware dependencies. So we are planning to prereq a Z14 GA2 or higher. And you will also uh, require a hardware feature code in order to use this function. And I know what's on the front of everybody's mind. Is it going to be zip eligible? Yes, we're planning to make this zip eligible. So the second item from the preview I wanted to talk about, because this is something, of course, near and dear to me, is we are not going to 
have a ZOS migration book. So yes, you heard that correctly. What we will have is what's called a ZOS upgrade workflow. So first of all, upgrade is the new term that we're going to use as of ZOS 2.4 instead of migration. So you guys know I always talk about migration. I am now going to talk about upgrade. Okay, so get, get, get used to that term. There is no migration book. We are going to let you use the upgrade workflow instead. So if you're familiar with workflow and you've heard me talk about this before, you're going to be needing to be a ZOSMF user. And you're going to need to be savvy in workflow in order to receive this upgrade migration for going to ZOS 2.4. Not everybody is familiar with ZOSMF, of course. Yes, of course. ZOSMF is not a driving system requirement for ZOS 2.4. So what we will do is we will export that ZOSMF upgrade workflow into a single file and we will put that on Knowledge Center so that those users that don't have ZOSMF or are not familiar with it or maybe don't even want to use it, you can view and search and print that upgrade technical information directly from that exported uh, file that we have provided. And that would be for both installation paths. 2.2 and the 2.3 installation path for upgrading ZOS 2.4. But really, I did want to mention, if you're not familiar with ZOSMF workflows, I strongly would recommend that you become familiar with it, because if you do use the ZOS uh, 2.4 upgrade workflow, it really will give you a, a better experience. There's a lot more functions in there that you can get than with a, a single exported file. And the next one is more kinds of things are supported for pervasive encryption. Yeah, you knew about it. Um, pervasive encryption that you've heard about in ZOSMF, or excuse me, ZOS 2.3 um, supported some types of uh, data being pervasively encrypted, and now we're going to have additional ZOS data set types. So now we're adding PDSE data types and also JES2 encryption of JES managed data sets on the spool, something uh, that's very important that we do. And what's quite important also is that this is without application changes, of course, and that simplifies the task of compliance. Oh, absolutely. That's what the beauty of pervasive encryption is. The next one I wanted to talk about is ZFS enhancement. Okay, we've got two areas in ZFS enhancement first one is for better application availability. So this first one, the better app availability, will allow an app that is running in a sysplex and that it's sharing read-write mounted ZFSs to no longer be affected when there is an unplanned outage. So those applications should no longer see an I.O. error in a situation in an unplanned outage which might have caused that application to be restarted in the path. We're going to do this with a new mount option that you specify, and it can be specified individually on a particular ZFS, or you can do it globally. And this option can also be changed dynamically. Now, if you're not in a shared file system environment, that's fine, because it's going to be ignored if you are in a single file system. Now, the second ZFS enhancement I wanted to mention about was a little facility I've really liked, which is called BPXWMIGAP. In ZOS 2.3, this was the ability to uh, migrate an online HFS to a ZFS 
But what we're going to do is enhance that in ZOS 2.4 so that you can migrate not only an HFS to a ZFS, but a ZFS to another ZFS without an unmount. So this is a, a real helpful item, especially if you want to move a ZFS from one volume to another. Now the fourth one I want to mention rather quickly in this mainframe topic is for MCS logon password. This is going to be implemented through the security policy profile, and it will provide more consistent secure security environment uh, that could make, make help meet your requirements. So this is all good stuff. What hardware is ZOS 2.4 supported on? Okay, that's a question that comes up a lot, and let's just get that out right away. Probably should have talked about that one first. But ZOS 2.4 will run on, that means it will IPL on, a ZEC12 or DC12 or higher. So understand that right away. So I think we're going to be talking about a lot of these enhancements in much more detail later on, probably after GA, I would have thought. Yeah, you know it. Let's walk over to our performance topic now. Martin, what do you have? Let's talk about coupling facility structure duplexing. Yeah. So the first thing to say is there are two types of coupling facility structure duplexing. There is user managed, which only applies to DB2 group buffer pools or GBPs for short. Contrast that with system managed, for example, and again, it's a DB2 example, the RLM lock one structure. So you know about management part. I know more about structure types. So tell me about how the structure types might be user or system managed. Well, the system managed variant can apply to all four structure types. So it can apply to cache structures, list structures, lock structures, and serialized list structures. On the other hand, the user managed obviously being DB2 group buffer pools, that can only be a cache structure. And actually there are some structures, just to complete the picture a little bit, that you typically wouldn't duplex. So for example, you wouldn't duplex the XCF structures because you have multiple distinct structures spread across your coupling facilities. And if one dies, then the traffic is rerouted automatically by XCF to the surviving structures. So we're putting structures now into the performance section. So tell me why structure performance matters. Well, again, we have to divide this into two. So let's talk about user-managed structures first. So for user-managed structures, the way it works is that the user, in this case actually the application, in this case actually DB2, it writes asynchronously to the secondary copy of the structure, and then it writes synchronously to the primary copy of the structure, but it's only for updates. So it's only a proportion of the requests that are even affected by duplexing. So generally speaking, the performance of user-managed duplexing, namely for DB2 group buffer pools, is not really an issue. Contrast that with system-managed structures, such as a lock one. Now a lock one, when it's duplexed, every request has to be duplicated to the two copies of the structure and they communicate with each other and despite many good refinements over the years this is quite a chatty protocol so things like lock one are very sensitive to 
the performance over distance, which is why people like to avoid, if they possibly can, duplexing the lock one over distance. So that, in a nutshell, is the performance landscape for duplexing, user managed being easier than system managed. All right, so the big deal now is we're going to talk about asynchronous, asynchronous CF structured duplexing. That's the big deal, right? Right, and that was announced uh, way back in October 2016. Now, this is just for lock structures, in particular, the DB2 RLM lock one structure, which is one of the reasons why I mentioned it extensively just now. It changes the rules somewhat. So, what happens is you still do the request to the primary, but the request is propagated asynchronously to the secondary, and so the elongation effects that you get with synchronous structure duplexing don't really apply. But because it changes the rules markedly, we actually need some cooperation from DB2. And one of the things that's worth saying is that just because a request behaves in its own right like it's not duplexed, that isn't the whole story because at commit time in DB2 terms, hence the DB2 involvement, the updates have to have happened to both copies of the structure. All right, so you talk about cooperation. You mentioned DB2 and you're mentioning structure. So what are these functional dependencies on this new function? So firstly, you need to have a modern processor, um, a Z13 or a Z13S or later, with CF level 21 or later. You also need to be at a modern level of 0S, in this case 2.2, which is not a particularly lofty goal for most customers right now, and some APARs. Uh, in particular, one for XES and another one for RMF. We'll come back to RMF in a bit. And APARs for DB2 version 12 and RLM 2.3. Okay, so the next thing is, let's say I meet these functional dependencies. Is asynchronous CF duplexing good for me all the time? So should I be just turning this thing on all the time? Well, the first thing to say is actually a very important question whether to go for async CF duplexing because People make architectural decisions around whether to use async duplexing or not. And so it shouldn't really be a leap in the dark. So for example, how far away do you put the lock structure? And also, do you go with ICFs only and duplex the structure or, or don't you? Those are decisions that people can't easily reverse. So this is an important question. And it's one of the reasons why I would recommend that, if possible, a customer tests as close to production as possible, really, although I know that's difficult, to establish the performance characteristics are, are good. Now, generally speaking, it's going to be better than synchronous duplexing or old-style duplexing, and usually it should be a hell of a sight better. All right, so, you know, me, ZOS Sys Sysprog type, if I know that it's going to be good for me, how do I actually implement this new function? I have no idea. I'm just a performance guy. Oh, you're so funny. Well, you know, I looked it up, and it, it's, you know, the usual things that I've got to do. I've got to format. I've got to put it into service with a set XCF, and I've got to do a reallocate command. So this is very typical for how I exploit new sysplex structure functions. So nothing too outstanding here once I've met the functional dependency. 
Right, but it does still reinforce the view that um, A6CF duplexing is something that requires careful planning and perhaps some testing. So the main event for this, though, right? You, you, Mr. SMF, you like performance stuff. Let's talk about performance now for this new function. Yep, I love it. So this is one of my favorite records. And in fact, we're talking about primarily the SMF 74 subtype 4 coupling facility activity record. Now, we're primarily interested for the purposes of this discussion at the structure level, especially for structure duplexing of any kind at all. Although it has to be said there is information on coupling facility to coupling facility pathing that could be taken into account. So what info is there at the structure level? Well, firstly, there is size and space utilization information. So you know, the, the size of the structure, the maximum size of the structure, the number of data elements, directory entries, and how full both of those portions of a, of a structure might be. Um, and the analogs for other structure types. The key one though here is the request rate and the service times, namely the performance of the structure. And in the duplexing case, obviously you would want to look at the performance of both copies. You'd want to see, actually when I said group buffer pools are not so heavily duplexed, whether the traffic to the primary is orders of magnitude or many multiples of the traffic to the secondary and all that can be established at structure level. And also for architectural purposes you might want to know which is the primary and the secondary and there are bit settings for the primary and secondary copy of the structure. But generally speaking in our code we're using a different method for establishing primary and secondary. Namely we're looking at the traffic to both the primary and the secondary and in particular, how much of that traffic is synchronous and how much is asynchronous. So for a group buffer pool, as I say, the secondary is written to asynchronously, so we can easily detect that one. Number one, because its traffic is going to be less than that to the primary, and number two, because all the traffic that does exist is going to be async. I have to say, for system managed, the traffic to the two copies is basically the same, so from my point of view, it doesn't really matter too much which is the primary and which is the secondary. So there has to be some sort of new instrumentation numbers that we can look at for the asynchronous CF duplexing function? Yes, there is. It's in the new asynchronous CF duplexing summary section, which you get with, a, uh, with an APAR to RMF. And actually, I wrote some Rex code to format that data. It's very much prototypical, might not stay as Rex. And it gives timings of the various components of the synchronization between the primary and the secondary, which, as I alluded to earlier, is not the same as the effective request time. Now, I'm coining the term effective request time because I want to distinguish between the requests to the coupling facility from XCS and, rather more importantly, the effects on the application. So the effective request time really is the application's point of view rather than the low-level infrastructural point of view. And really, to look at that, you have to look at DB2 accounting trace rather than the 74 subtype 4 information, although that, as I've alluded to, gives you a good view of what's actually going on. In particular, it gives you something called sequence numbers, 
And sequence numbers are important for synchronization. And you can see at each stage of the duplexing process how far apart the sequence numbers are between the primary and the secondary. That's a very much a potted view of it. But it could tell you if they were particularly far apart, in, according to a 74 subtype 4, whether you have some kind of duplexing performance issue or not. I have to say this is early days, despite having been announced three years ago. So I, I'm only able at this point to use one customer's test data because it's not a terribly prevalent thing for people to be doing just yet, though I think within a year or so a lot of people will be doing it. So I would very much like to build experience through early customer cases. And the final point I think I'd make on instrumentation and performance is that only a portion of the new 74 subtype 4 data is surfaced in the RMF post-processor reports. So, for example, the sequence numbers are not something I've seen reported in, in sample RMF reports. All right, so we're talking about um, sysplex here. And, and, you know, oh, by the way, I've been kind of playing around with the ZOSMF uh, duplexing management within the ZOSMF sysplex management plugin. This is a really nice way of visualizing what I have out there as, as far as structures and other things are concerned. And we do have new controlling mechanisms that we've got within an APAR that have been put out there. And I really kind of like that as well. So ZOSMF is, is playing a little bit in this game as well. And now it's time for our topics topic. Yeah, so today we were thinking of a topics topic. And I thought, you know, this one might be interesting because it, was something that I recently did in my own house. It's about our smart home thermostat. So why exactly are we talking about this? Yeah, because I thought you might be interested in it because you always like cool, interesting, smart things in your house. Uh, and I just installed two Nest thermostats in my house. And where did you install them? Well, I've got three zones in my house, so I was able to install them in two zones. Uh, the upper floor, the third floor of my house, the second so what do these actually control? Okay, so this controls uh, the temperature. So <laughs> um, first of all, I heat with oil, like a lot of people do in the Northeast, and I have air conditioning with electricity. So these are thermostats that control both for heat and also the air. So what was the actual reason for installing them? Because you don't do this sort of thing just willy-nilly. That's right. You know, it's not like people say, hey, I want to, you know, replace my thermostats. But you know what? I got a lot of good incentives from my electric company. And I was looking at it and I thought, you know, this is a really interesting thing. There might be some benefits to putting a smart thermostat in my house. And when the electric company offers some pretty good incentives, I, I really did jump on this. And so I was able to get to work. So there must be a reason that the electricity company is doing this. Presumably it's they're uh, going to be able to control something. Yeah, that's exactly right. So they, you know, they get something from me and I get something from them. That's how, you know, the system kind of works around here, right? So I am going to let the electric company control my thermostat. My family is a little bit leery about this, but I'm going to do it. So what they are allowed to do is at high electric peak demands in the summer, I am going to let them control the thermostat in my house up five times this summer 
and up to 5 degrees. That's 5 Fahrenheit degrees. Sorry, we're going to do you know, the Americans here. So Fahrenheit degrees for one hour in my house. And my family is a little bit leery about it. I can override this at any time. I can tell from the thermostat itself that it is being overridden. And I can easily just go over and, you know, t opt out right away. But I do need to let them have those eight times during the summer, which will happen. So that's kind of what I gave them. You know, my family's a little leery about it, but we're going to see how this works. We haven't got the summer yet. And there must be some kind of benefit. So let's talk about the instrumentation side first. Yeah, so of course this comes with an app. Uh, the app is actually very nice and intuitive use. I, I do like it. And so now that I've had the Nest thermostats installed for maybe two months or so, not, not all that long, but I am starting to see some very cool instrumentation. I'm able to see how many hours I call for heat. Of course, see how many hours I call for air conditioning, but this winter I haven't called for any air conditioning yet. I have tested it out, but that's about it. But I can also see very nice scales of hours that I need things like heat, uh, what's exactly happening on thermostats. I can also see from remote, I can see what temperature the house is, and I, you know, basically see a lot of cool things with it, and I'm really only starting to understand a lot of the instrumentation and graphs that I'm getting, so I think when I get to use it more, I'll probably understand a whole lot more about it. So that would be the thing that would sell me on this just in its own right, is the instrumentation benefit. But there must be some kind of control benefit as well. Yeah, I knew you'd love the instrumentation, Mr. SMF record. Uh, yeah, there is a control as well. And, and maybe that's where I come in more, is I like to be able to control this a whole, uh, a whole lot because I, I want to make sure that I'm not calling for heat. That's expensive. Or electricity, air conditioning in the summer if I really don't need it. So I can look from my app for my two zone nest thermostat. I currently see what the temperature is on the third floor. I can see what the humidity is on the third floor. I can see whether that is calling for it or whether it's actually. I can see the control on the second floor as well. So I can tell, I, I think, let's say we're going to be leaving soon and or we're going to be coming home soon. And I can just, you know, pop open the app and start having controlling, I turn whether it's on or off. It, it really allows me to control it just like I was standing in front of the thermostat myself. And something else you mentioned is what I think is known as geofencing, um, which is knowing where you are. Yeah, that's right. Another thing that I had to kind of give away is location. And so what we've done is I've put in users onto this app, and when these users are close to the house, it has learned that the temperature that we like, if it's not there, it automatically turns it on and it understands that we're coming home and that we want the house at a particular degree. And so this this location knowledge is actually very interesting and it is learning my habits, you know, what, what temperature I want and when I'm coming home at a certain time of the day. So I don't really have to program that in. It really is just learning it myself. It took a while to learn it, and I had to manually set it. But once I've manually set it, it really is actually learning what I want pretty well. And I walk by and look at the nest, and my gosh, it, it really is working pretty well. A little bit scary, but, but also very helpful. 
I was going to say, so tell me which not at all democratically controlled organization is learning your habits. <laughs> who, who is? I, I don't know. I, I mean... Uh, who, make, who, ma who makes Nest? You know, I think Nest was just bought by another company. I'm not really sure. Jeez, I'm not really sure. Somebody is. Uh, somebody, somebody lovely, but also scary. Yeah, that's true. Uh, probably no more than, than other things I've had people learn about. So I'm sure somebody will probably tell us who has uh, purchased it. But anyway, that for, for now it's Nest. Nest is probably owned by somebody and will be owned by somebody else and then will be owned by a, a very large conglomerate at that point. Anyway, so have you any evidence at this point that you've cut your electricity usage, which I guess would be the primary point? Yeah, so in the wintertime, it's, you know, electricity usage is way down, at least in my household. So I, it has said that I really have uh, cut down between just a couple of months I've had it. But what really is interesting is I'm able to compare with other people, presumably, I believe it's my zip code, and it can compare us to neighbors. And I, I think this is where it gets a little bit flaky because I'm assuming, you know, my house is not all that large and it might compare people in my neighborhood that have larger houses or smaller houses or maybe people that keep with, you know, electricity. I don't know why they do that, but they might in my neighborhood. And so, you know, it, it compares me to the neighbors, and it is telling me some interesting things. And luckily, it's telling me that I use uh, a, a percentage less electricity than my neighbors, which, of course, feel really good. And it also tells me that I have it on, uh, you know, eco settings a lot, which, of course, I really like as well. So the other G word we ought to deploy here is gamification, because there's a certain element of competition with the neighbors here. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I kind of have a sense of pride that I am um, using electric, less electricity than my neighbors. Though, you know, there's a couple people living in my house, and some of my neighbors maybe only have one person. So it, it, it kind of, I, I like to to be, you know, marked as green and also using less electricity. Kind of gamifying. So I, I think you're you're getting well trained. Well, we're considerably less well trained. The nearest thing we have to this at this point, because we, yes, of course we have the thermostat, but it's a dumb thermostat, is a remote sensor on our oil tank, because we also heat with oil. Uh, this is quite a nice little gadget. But basically, there's a probe that goes into the oil tank that relays to um, a little box in the house how much oil is in the tank. So that's kind of fun because it enables us to see the oil tank draining, hopefully not alarmingly, although it seems to go fairly fast, and oil, of course, is expensive. Uh, and that, too, shows up on my phone. Now, at this point, there's no feedback to control anything on it, but it, it, it's interesting how these things are coming along. And supposedly, it's supposed to enable the oil company to deliver oil just when we need it, uh, so, yeah, we're we're playing with this stuff too, but not not in as advanced state as you are. And so, to have the pleasure of knowing how fast your oil level is going down, do you pay for this? Yeah, we do. It's quite it's quite expensive. It's a little bit of insurance in the sense because, in principle, as I say, the oil company will actually deliver, and we don't have to ring them up. But I'm not sure, to be honest, it's worth it. Yeah, that's that's the thing is we can have that at our house as well. But for me, my oil tank is in the basement and I can just walk down into the basement and look at the level of it any time I want. So I didn't think really for me it was 
it was going to be $5 a month, and I didn't really think that was worth it. But I don't know. We'll, we'll see. You tell me if it's worth it for you. Um, maybe I'll get it. I just guess that your basement is not as cold as the Benson Frost Pocket in winter, which is why I don't want to go outside and check the oil every day. Yeah, that's true. And as we come to the end of this podcast episode, we should talk about where we're going to be in the next few weeks. Yes, I'm preparing to go to Share in Phoenix, March 11th through 15th. You're still preparing. I'll be preparing all the way to the time I get up to present, I think. And I'm still preparing for March the 12th GSE UK, the ZCMPA Working Group in London. Um, the presentation still needs writing. We're making progress, but I'm still preparing. And of course, we welcome your feedback on this episode or any episode of the Mainframe Performance Topic. And you can contact me as martin underscore packer at uk.ibm.com for email and martin packer on Twitter. I'm M. Wally. M-W-A-L-L-E at us.ibm.com and M. Wally also on Twitter. So it goes.